Welcome to the Geek Gab RPG Special. I'm your host, Dornal. On this show, we're going to talk about role-playing games, uh, how to play them, how to run them, uh, different tips and tools and tricks. Uh, we got a great show tonight. Uh, we've got the usual folks here. We've got a great panel. Uh, we've got the best panel, in fact. Um, we've got our fearless leader, Daddy Warpig, joining us. He's been running RPGs for years and years and years. Uh, and we've got uh, Brian Niemeyer, our usual uh, co-host as well, author of the Dragon Award-winning Soul Dancer books. Uh, you guys may not know this, uh, but his books were inspired by his <laughs> role-playing uh, at the gaming table, running his games. Uh, and we also have our special guest, Jeffro Johnson, author of Appendix N, The Literary History of Dungeons and Dragons. Why don't you say hello? Hey, thanks for having me back. This is awesome. I've uh, I've muted poor Daddy Warpig, and I can't unmute him. I wanted him to say hello. <laughs> is it really a geek gab if he doesn't say, we are back? <laughs> hey, Brian, how's it going? Busy. I'm actually taking a break from revising not one, but two books right now to come and share my accumulated wisdom from the RPG table, and uh, yeah, thanks for putting this together, man. This is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, so tonight's topic, uh, we're going to talk about OSR, also known as the Old School Revival. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of other things, like tips and tricks and tools for people. And uh, for those of you live, uh, chat, chat with us live, ask some questions. If you have some questions about running a game or problems with your game that you want uh, our panel of experts to answer, We'll try and answer those at the end of the show. And so, honestly, I'm I'm uh, waiting with bated breath here what Jeffro was going to say. Man, <laughs> but let's find out. This is going to be wild, folks. So uh, let me start with my what I think about OSR. Olds OSR is also known as old school renaissance or old school revival. And to me, I describe it as people rediscovering the rules and systems used by the people who created RPGs. And it's a little more than that, though, because it involves rediscovering the reasons and the inspirations for those rules. Reasons being why, why those rules existed at the gaming table and inspiration, as, uh, as Jeff R. Johnson uh, points out in his book, uh, where did a lot of those rules come from? So what do you guys think? What does OSR mean to you, Daddy Warpig? Um, I came to the OSR very, very late when I started uh, participating in an internet message board that uh, pretty much, as far as I can tell, the vast majority of OSR people um, participate on. And I, I met, um, you know, just a ton of people uh, there who are actual, you know, have published their own OSR rule sets. Um, I, somebody just linked to a blog post by Rob Conley, and I'm like, oh, I know Rob Conley. I discuss things a lot with him. Um, there's a gentleman right now who's making a mega dungeon with uh, Gary Gygax's son, uh, and I know him from the message board. We've talked for a long time. Uh, we still do every now and then. And so the way I came into the OSR was – a bunch of people who had, who were talking about classic D&D, &D, talking about 
um, classic Dungeoneering who had been having arguments with fourth edition uh, fans for years. And I, I came to this before the fifth edition was even announced or being thought of. So Pathfinder was on its uh, on its rise. Pathfinder had taken over the number one selling spot in role-playing, taken it away from Dungeons and Dragons. Fourth edition was, was dead. Um, and I met all these people who not only had written uh, or were working with retro clones of D&D, of whatever edition of D&D they preferred, but I was also talking to people who had gone out and made their own style of games, like Stars Without End, which is a hex crawl in space where you are exploring system after system that is completely unknown to you. You don't know what's out there, and you're going in and exploring system after system. A really interesting concept, something I, I wish I had a chance to play. Other people had published you know, superhero stuff, steampunk stuff, all based around uh, old, old, uh, old Dungeons & Dragons material. So when I got involved... Uh, with, with discussing things with these people, it was from a completely different direction than a lot of other uh, people who were involved from the beginning. That's really interesting. You you mentioned something in there that I wanted to point out was was particularly old school. You said hex crawl in space. Yes, the hex, the hex crawl is one of those rediscovered systems uh, that that is is sort of associated with the OSR, which in my experience, gaming through the 90s, uh, during like the White Wolf's heyday, the storytelling gaming's heyday, it was a, a construct that I wasn't familiar with at all, where you actually, the Game Master has a map of an, a region on a hex paper, and the players will, will go out exploring the wilderness, or in your example, exploring outer space. And the Dungeon Master would keep track of where they were by using this hex map. And so the players would be crawling along the hex. And the, the reason why things like this had to be dis rediscovered is because, at least from the, 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 the games and the magazines that I was reading in the mid-80s, a lot of people came in and they wanted to make something bigger and better and more, more mature. And uh, there was this, there was, uh, even in, like GURPS second edition, for example, great system. Uh, but it includes in their derogatory statements towards the old style fantasy tabletop role playing, and it, it, the attitude was that this was uh, childish or or this is this is a kids game. But now we we're moving on to the really good stuff, the the really the, the stuff that really cool people play, um, and and it took a long time uh, to break through some of these attitudes because it it, it was so pervasive i here's the thing and this just occurred to me today because i was i was working this out as, as a result of uh playing a, a game called the room 2 um on the iphone and and i trust me this is going to tie back into DD. <laughs> the room is all about a series of puzzles you're presented with objects in a room, and you have to figure out how to manipulate these objects to, you have to look close to find things, you have to figure out which flip, to, which switch to flip, how to take stuff apart, how to put it back together. It's all based around puzzle gameplay. Um, and the original versions of Dungeons & Dragons, the original model for Dungeons & Dragons, the assumed gameplay model that was not transmitted in the books 
They didn't write about it in the books, and so it didn't get transmitted to people who picked up Dungeons and Dragons box sets at Walden Books. The model for that is traps and situations and solving the puzzle. And I think that even if you're not going full Dungeoneering, even if you're not going full hex crawl, even if you're not going full D&D, that that kind of thinking, that kind of player agency, that kind of interacting with objects in the dungeon, but also interacting with creatures in the dungeon who may or may not be hostile to you. Well, this is a critical part of D&D that got left out is if you ran across a bunch of orcs, you didn't necessarily have to attack them because they weren't necessarily going to attack you. You could negotiate with them. They might be hostile and you could negotiate with them or they might even be friendly for whatever reason. And the game master would have to come up with reasons to explain this reaction check. But one of the things I've been thinking about today and, and what I'm saying is, is this, is the OSR has had a lot of influence beyond just publishing new versions of old D&D stuff. It's had a lot of influence beyond even people who made direct D&D-inspired games that have nothing to do with fantasy gaming. Like, again, Stars Without End. But it has had a number, a large effect on actual game designers who have gone back and wrapped in uh, some of the original concepts from D&D into their designs because they think to themselves, like I've done, wow, that's interesting. That could be a really good route to take this, that even if we're not playing a class game, even if we're not playing a strict Dungeoneering campaign, even if we're playing with skills, that it might be more interesting to borrow that puzzle, trap, clue mentality. And here's here's where I got to today. I, I have mentioned before I'm designing my own RPG. Um, and while I was playing The Room 2 today, what I thought of was this. It has been typically in skill-based games where if you wanted to find something in the room, the players would roll the dice, and if they succeeded, they found it. Or you have the problem where if players roll the dice and they failed, they wouldn't find it at all. So other games have come along, and I'm thinking specifically of Gumshoe and its variants and games inspired by it. They've come along and said, okay, well, we're not going to force you to roll. Instead, we'll give you investigation points, and you can just automatically succeed. We'll assume you automatically succeed, but if you run out of investigation points, then uh, you can't do this anymore. So that's another approach. My approach is it, it's not old school because it doesn't harken back to D&D. It's not part of the explicit D&D experience because it is based on skills and it's based on characters having different skills, not player ability. But instead of just telling players, oh, by the way, you've succeeded here, you found this. Instead of telling players that, the search total will actually give them clues about what it's like in the room that they might have overlooked, the players might have overlooked themselves. And so it's still a puzzle. The players still have to go through it and solve it. But the more, the higher this character's search skill, the better the character is at looking, the more information the player will have at their disposal to solve this puzzle. And 
the exact rule, by the way, that all this is based on is if the player gets it right, they just get it. They don't have to roll. So if the player says, I want to look in this one book and I think the envelope is there, if the envelope is actually there, you don't make them roll a search total. They figured out the puzzle without having to make a skill check. They just succeed. So it's not OSR, but it has been heavily influenced by descriptions of old school play. And, uh, and skill checks aren't exactly OSR either. I mean, it, it, in general, the type of gameplay that skill-based games generate is the players try and figure out which skills apply to the situation so that they can make a dice roll against that skill. Uh, and it creates all those weird situations where if you don't have the right skills, uh, even diceless systems like Gumshoe do this, where certain clues are available to people with certain skills, and if you don't have those skills, you're not going to find it. When uh, I think a lot of old-school-minded games, you're going to... Uh, the, the DM is going to let them players explore and find out on their own. Um, there's... There's a great saying from the webpage that I use as my resource where uh, he says, player skill implies character skill. In other words, if, if you think of something or you think to do something, then your character thought of that. Uh, you know, the, the, the character basically gets that skill. And it, it, makes, it makes for sort of a seamless gameplay where you're not worried about like what skill to roll. Like have you guys ever played a game of of D&D like especially 3rd edition or Pathfinder where your player looks at you and says uh, I'm going to knowledge nature this and they just roll the dice before you say anything. Like yeah, oh. <laughs> describe your ass every time they do that I say describe your actions. Just just describe your actions. <laughs> what are you doing? Engage with the imagination side of it. Don't don't, as, as Bradford C. Walker puts it, don't try to pilot the mech. That actually, the, all that, all those rules and roles don't actually have anything to do with imagining the situation. So, like, why are you inserting? The big problem with that is, is that the players are, in my opinion, they're making dungeon master rulings w without getting your consent. And, you know, how do they know that you're not just going to say, yes, it worked? They don't know that they're they're assuming that they want. So what what happens when they they say I'm rolling this and then they fail? <laughs> you know the GM's going to be like, okay, I guess you didn't see anything. You know, but you don't know that he what he was going to rule. You you don't know that. And so it, it it's a it's a gaming culture that in my it's fundamentally different from from the sort of assumptions that I would have made uh, you know back in the 80s. Uh, it, it's just not how I would even think about the game. What I'm thinking of, I like the idea that I, I think I ran across it first in, in one of your blog posts. There is a benefits to the idea that the game master rolls all the dice. There are a lot of benefits to that, that the players only engage in telling the game master what they want to do. He decides what the rules are behind his screen and he rolls the dice and then tells the players what happened. Um... I think, and here, here's where it ties into what you were talking about. The ideal point for a role-playing game to me 
is if the players can be allowed to forget about the rules and only think in terms of what their character is going to do. Where they're going to walk, how they're going to talk, what specifically, what actions they're specifically taken, taking in the game world. So instead of saying, okay, well, I come into the room, we need to find this letter, and I'm going to use the same example because this is the example I've been thinking about, and then they roll a search total because the game master says, okay, we'll roll a search check, and they roll a search total, and the game master says, well, after the searching your room, after searching this room, you find it in, uh, in this book, and then players read the clue. That's fairly typical, and that's actually above yeah. average for most, most GMs in most games, but... With players not rolling the dice at all, not even have access to their character sheets during the game, they can say, okay, we come to this room, what's in this room? And the game master is, if the presumption is that players have to describe what their character is doing, that immediately places an onus on the game master to better describe the environment they're in. Right. Because he can't just cheat and say, roll a search total. He has to say, there's a large desk in the center of the room. It's a mahogany desk. It's got a rollaway top. Along one wall is a vast bookcase filled from the top of the ceiling to bottom with many, many books. And there's also letters and papers shoved in between these books. There is uh, a fireplace uh, on the other side of the room. There's no fire in it, but you can see that there are ashes in it. What do you do? And, and then include whatever, you know, other details you personally as a GM might say, okay, well, there's a poker there too. There's a picture of the fireplace, whatever. The assumption then is that you have to describe the world, world well. For the players to be able to describe their actions, they have to know what kind of space they're acting in. You have to describe it well enough so that they can see it in their mind, and that makes the game world more concrete, that makes the game world more understandable, that gives the players a better feeling of the environment they're in. It allows you to communicate small, subtle hints about the world they're in. For example, instead of saying, oh, there's a bunch of books on the wall, you can say, the wall is filled from top to bottom, with graphic novels of and manga that immediately conveys one type of character or you can say well the bookcase is filled from top to bottom with books on politics that immediately conveys a different kind of npc character or you can say well the the bookcase is filled from top to bottom with strange volumes written in alphabets that you've never seen before and that immediately conveys something entirely different and then the players are forced in this system where they don't see the dice at all and they don't see their character sheets uh, at all, other than their like inventory and stuff. They don't see the mechanics. They're forced to come in and say, okay, well, what I want to do is look to see uh, if the shelves are dusty and if they are dusty, if any of the dust has been disturbed. That's one specific action that the character is taking. And the GM can say, well, yes, in the middle of the second shelf from the top, one of the books, the dust in front of one of the books has been disturbed. Well, immediately they know that someone's taking that book off the shelf for whatever reason, and they can continue to investigate. I don't want to go fully that direction with the players never rolling the dice, but I think a really good compromise between the old school method and the new school method is 
players have their inventory. They have cards or sheets or whatever for any special effects they have, spells, miracles, martial arts maneuvers, whatever. And then during the game, they don't have access to the game mechanics for their character, so they're not thinking in terms of game mechanics. They still have their dice, and they can roll their dice and do well or do poorly as, as they choose, but the game master is the one who tells them what skill to roll, he tells them when to roll it, and he tells them uh, whether they're doing, whether they are starting this off well or badly. Um, and then all that the players have to interface with the world is not numbers. It is the game master's description of the world and their description of the actions they take in it. Yeah, and, and some of them, some I run games at cons, and I, I see people coming in from the other tables uh, that just, just want to sit in on an old school game. Uh, and some of them actually can't handle it. Uh, you know, they look at a a basic D&D character sheet and they they are in a state of panic for the entire four-hour session because they actually genuinely feel like they can't do anything it's 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 bizarre to me I, I can't um, uh, but they the uh, they, they never get over it uh, it's almost like there there's and, and this is this is where you you get into hurting people's feelings um, but so this is just a conjecture oh my but, favorite part. But, but it's almost as if um, uh, that there's a generational difference for some of these people, the, the, the way they've grown up, the way that all their toys uh, have stories baked into them already, and all all their video games have a have cutscenes already built into them, and they've had they've got way more uh, movies and television on tap than I would have had at the at, at the, when I was their age. Um, and so they've never had the space in order to actually exercise their imaginations in the same way that we did. And so when you, when you put them in a situation where they either have to get creative or the kobolds are going to kill them, then they just die uh, because they, 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 they can't imagine there being any lateral moves that they can take in, in these kinds of scenarios. And that, that reminds me of the way I deal with new players uh, because I have to do the same sort of thing. And it's one of the reasons why I changed my game from uh, 3.5 D&D to D&D 5th edition is because I was teaching new players how to play and we sort of rushed through character creation. I'm like, don't worry about all these numbers. You know, well, I'll just tell you to roll when the time comes, which is a good policy. But then halfway through the session, there'd be a combat or, or, or some tense situation and the ki the guy the new player is just stare looking down and staring at his character when i ask okay it's your turn what do you want to do and he just stares and so i've had to do this several times i actually reach over grab his his brand new character <laughs> that we just made for him and i rip it off the table and i throw it on the floor and i said forget anything on that sheet and i look him dead in the eyes and i say what do you do <laughs> It's clear that the system got in the way. Very really, really, really. Go ahead, Brian. <clears throat> no, that, that's a perfect illustration. What about yeah, I, your experience with OSR, Brian? It's very limited. I've only played one campaign set in it, and um, 
Our gym's a little quirky. He used a book called Lamentations of the Flame Princess. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of that. Oh, yeah. It's a Raggy's game. She sounds hot. It's, it's totally metal. It's the most metal RPG ever. Okay. Yeah, I got the link updated there. Yeah. Cool. And, um, well, see, this, this is where I totally derail things because I, I'm one of those heathens who basically grew up in the RPG wilderness like Romulus raised by wolves. Okay. So I've never really played at any gaming conventions. I've really only played with um, a, a rather small inbred group of, of guys and in my local area. And um, we do things totally wrong. <laughs> so when approaching limitations of the Flame Princess, yeah, I like the system, but again, uh, our games are totally like theme and story driven. So the GM that we have running this, um, and he's he's really avant-garde. He's really heavy into surrealism, like uh, you know China medieval books and stuff. So you know, oh, you know, you run into what you think is a little girl, but when she turns around, she has like a screaming void where her face should be with spider legs coming out of it. You know that that kind of thing, and you know, people throw ducks at balloons, and nothing is as it seems. That kind of kind of mind-bending, you know, and psychedelic like that. That's weird, man. Oh, weird doesn't even begin to describe it. So he he just pitched a game to us. I just got a text message today. He's like, I'm thinking of running, running a new game, 1967, plus the secret space program, plus displaced people, plus Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, Plus Marvel's Eternals. <laughs> that that's the right way to do it. That that is exactly the right way to do it be, because mashup is it 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 sounds dumb. Uh, it, it it seems like it, it wouldn't make sense, but the the more you mix in to the conglomeration and the more wildly diverse it is. The more, the more it actually, it, it really does work at the table. It, it's counterintuitive <laughs> in some ways, uh, but it, it is just insanely fun. And, and, and if you look back at all the old RPGs, all of them are, are just crazy conglomerates. Well, that's reassuring. I, so I, I got a question for you guys. Uh, now we, uh, I feel much better about my understanding of, of OSR and what it is, but why? Can you guys tell me why you would explore uh, the old school rules? Uh, can I answer that one? Of course. All right. Um, now, now everybody's different, but I, and I didn't get to tell my journey to the OSR. Uh, I was sort of OSR before OSR was was its thing. I, I never got over Car Wars, uh, and I, I I I read those rules. And I always wanted to play an RPG campaign with them the way they seem to indicate they should be played. Uh, but, you know, growing up in the 80s, there's so many things competing for your time, so many uh, new games coming out. Just never got around to it. So when I finally, uh, you know, got 
uh, where I could, where I was mature enough to form gaming groups and run things the way I'd imagine they should go. Uh, it's like just just start going through my list of, of gaming dreams, things that I wanted to do before I died. <laughs> you, you, know, you can't you kind of can't help what's on that list, but you start doing it, and then with the internet, uh, there are all these games that I heard about. Like in the introduction to second edition GURPS, there's mentions to tunnels and trolls in there. And I'd never seen a copy of that. And in my Car Wars box, there was a reference to a Space Gamer magazine that sounded like the most awesome magazine ever. And so when you can finally get those things on the internet and get all these editions you've never seen before, and uh, not only that, you can hear from all these other people that uh, have session reports on them. Uh, the exciting thing about the OSR, uh, you know, being one of those kids that, that has unfulfilled gaming dreams uh, is that you have all these resources to help you get these things on the table. Um, and I think one of the things that, that has come out of it, just, just by having this wide open discussion, is that you suddenly have the support group uh, and, and, and the insight to look at some of these old games and seriously take them apart and, and experience them for what they were uh, under the assumption uh, that they are not broken. Uh, I think that out, outside of the discussion, uh, the default setting for almost everybody when it comes to these games is that they're dumb. They're, some, they're obviously inferior to what came later. There's like a, 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 an assumption of progress. But what I think we have uncovered uh, through the wide-ranging discussions on the blogs and the actual play uh, is that they are not often well articulated. They're not well presented, and they certainly, many of these old games needed editing desperately. But when you get to what the game design is underneath the cruft and underneath the the the, uh, the the oftentimes hard to understand rules. The game that is under there is actually some of the best gaming that you're ever going to have. It, it is it it's counterintuitive, but this stuff is gold. Stuff that you looked at as a kid and said that could never work. That's dumb. There was oftentimes ninety nine times out of a hundred way more to it than you ever expected, and um, the reason that there is a thing is that people are getting reproducibly awesome experiences. Uh, They're unlocking secrets of gaming. Uh, and, and, and it is just, it is the most exciting thing on the internet. That is quite a statement. <laughs> I'll disagree. I think the most exciting thing on the internet is the pulp revolution, but that's, uh, You've got the right audience for that. <laughs> uh, do you guys want to respond? Ask the question again, so I can actually respond to it. Uh, uh, the uh, it was why why are we exploring OSR? Why explore these old rules? Um, I'm exploring OSR because people who I talk to and communicate with are talking about OSR. Um, and I had come to the conclusion a long time ago that I just don't like character classes. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, 
I could give you a long list of reasons why character classes do in fact work for a game and why they're the right decision for some games. Uh, and especially for Dungeons and Dragons, they were definitely the right decision for the original version of Dungeons and Dragons. I don't disdain classes. I don't assume that classes are quote unquote more primitive. Um, some jackass in some gaming magazine in the uh, late 90s published this entire article about how role-playing games were like technology, and this is the first generation of role-playing games, and then we advanced to the second generation, and, and then we advanced to the third generation. There's a huge numbers of nitwits out there who actually believe that, that gaming is like a technology that's advancing. It's not. There is very little that is actually advancing in gaming other than awareness of editing, other than awareness of the necessity for clear description, and even that isn't evenly spread across the entire industry, and also production values. But I don't know that the production values, even though they produce gorgeous books that I love because they're gorgeous, I don't know that upping the requirements for production values has necessarily been healthy for the industry as a whole uh, in the long run. In any case, the OSR is valuable. Classes are valuable. They're not intrinsically, you know, less advanced. But I prefer skill-based systems because I find classes to be too restrictive. Um, for example, you know, Gandalf is a, almost an archetypical wizard, and yet he was able to wear armor and use a sword. And in a lot of classic D&D, Wizards, magic users can't do that. Now, I'm not saying that makes it bad. And I'm not saying you should change that. You can if you want to, but I'm not saying you should because the reason why classes work is because they're archetypes for the setting of D&D, for the dungeoneering puzzle-based gameplay that D&D was intended to implement. Those are archetypes that work well. The, the quartet of classes are archetypes that work well together in a party. Um, but... You need to have, um, in my opinion, as a game designer, if you're not going to depend on luck, my opinion is that game designers who are not going to depend on luck should have as much knowledge of other games, especially of uh, games that might not have been talked about for a long time because there is a lot of value to be found there. And that's the primary value I get out of the OSR is it's a completely different approach to game mastering and playing than what I've been used to since I started playing D&D. And in looking at things from a completely different point of view, you can either find out that one, the way they do it differently is better. Two, you can find out that the way they do it differently you really don't like and so know better why you're making a decision you're making. Make it consciously instead of just receiving wisdom from whatever systems that you've liked. Or three, think that their approach has some strengths, but that you want and you might want to adopt some of the mechanical approaches or some of the mechanics themselves, but that you want to do it in a different way or you want to meld it with your own approach to mean something better. The more you know, to a certain extent, the better, especially the more different approaches you know, to a certain extent as a, as a designer or as a person who's going to make up house rules for your game, the better off you are. That's what value I find in the OSR. I 
would not necessarily play the games, although I would like to sit down in a dungeon-crawling old-school campaign for a while and just to see how it works, to experience it from the inside. But other than that, I mainly use it to broaden my mind about possible approaches to solving problems in building a game. I bet uh, real money that that guy who claimed that games are progressing never said progressing toward what? Oh, yeah, the classic progressive uh, conundrum. I, I do have uh, one example of game design progress that I would like to throw out uh, on while we're on the subject. Um, and, and it ties in both to the backward look and the moving forward uh, themes. Um, uh, the modules that I grew up with uh, would have been uh, B2, Keep on the Borderlands, because it came in my basic set, and then X1, Isle of Dread. And uh, these represented the, the two primary types of D&D adventuring. One was just a straight-ahead dungeon, uh, the Caves of Chaos. And then the other was a wilderness, a hex crawl, like we were talking about earlier, on the Isle of Dread with uh, encounters and uh, dungeon-type situations dropped here and there on the island. Um, now, the D&D the, the line went off to say, what's the next thing? What is the next step in this? Uh, well, it went from, in the basic line, it went from to, to companion and then uh, masters and immortal. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, yes, there was a domain level play in AD&D, for instance, uh, but that's not really where a lot of people went. I mean, I know there, I know there are some campaigns who played the domain game. And you know, I got out all the, did all the miniatures battles, but that never really stuck outside of of, of the Wisconsin type culture. Um, uh, it, it, what the OSR brought to the table uh, was a uh, uh, and 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 it's because of guys like Rob Kuntz who were there at the very beginning explaining this. These modules were not the end all be all of the game. Uh, you you weren't. <laughs> The whole idea of Dungeons and Dragons wasn't that you would buy one module after another and just cruise through them and, and, until you ran out of material to do. Those modules were merely an example to show you how to dungeon master, to how to how to create your own adventures. They were worked examples. They weren't really meant to confine your imagination. Um, so. One thing that, that the OSR uh, has done to innovate is that they've, they've ba they basically broke the story uh, that the old rule sets were engineered from the ground up for an entirely different style of play than what the modules we bought uh, tended to create as a side effect. Uh, Mega Dungeons is how the games were originally played, how they were meant to be played. Uh, these would be big, gigantic dungeons that you were never meant to fi to finish, um, uh, and that is what really <laughs> one, uh, one reason why people con consistently misinterpret the old rule sets is because they they aren't reading them for what they were intended. For. They don't see that they were pointing to this. Um, so it wasn't until in the past decade, the past ten years or so that we even got mega dungeon products that were that were that were published 
they, they, <laughs> the whole idea around the old style of play, uh, the, we, we, the industry was not advanced enough to put them out. Um, yeah, in, in fact, the, the products that did come out were published back in the, uh, in the uh, open source uh, days for 3.5 were just reprints and, and conversions of some of those classic mega dungeons from uh, you know 1979 or, or what have you. They would just convert converted it to 3.5, added some of their own stuff, and published it. So uh, just as an example of what could be done and how innovative it is, uh, Dwemer Mount uh, from uh, Autark is first rate. Uh, and it's not only old style D&D, it's infused with uh, a, a double dose of the literature that inspired it, the, the game. Uh, and the other one you would really want to take a look at is Stonehell Mega Dungeon by Michael Curtis. This one's especially neat because each level is made up of four one-page dungeons. Uh, and they're all designed to be taken out and played separately if that's what you want to do, or you could play it as the whole shebang. Um, but the one-page dungeon concept would be like the opposite extreme from a mega dungeon. Instead of this giant thing that you can't even publish, it's so gigantic or so crazy. Uh, a one-page dungeon, uh, the, the innovation there is that you, you actually only need one page of, of, of dungeon module to run a good session. <laughs> you, could, you can get quite a ways with that. Whereas if, if you're in the publishing business and you make money every time you sell paper, that creates an artifact in how you engineer your designs that are not actually conducive to what people actually need at the table. That gives me a whole new perspective. Let me, uh, let's move on to the, the next uh, thing. And, and I'm going to do that by way of telling my own story, which sort of ties all this together. Uh, I was a player for years and years and years. Uh, I've, been, I've been playing for as long as most of y'all, um, but as a player, not a dungeon master. And I played in, uh, Daddy Warpig is actually uh, one of my dungeon masters. And, and uh, his his style, where he, he says he doesn't like classes, he likes his skill-based games. Uh, you know, Daddy Warpig has a particular style of game mastering. And uh, game masters of my youth were very similar. Very story-driven, uh, that sort of thing. Very narrative-driven. And every time I tried to master a game, it just flopped. It failed. And... It wasn't until I came back around to it a few years ago and found a site that Daddy Warpig linked to, I think, on his blog. Uh, that brought me to a site that I want to tell everybody about. And I've said it before for people who've listened to the Geek App before, but um, the, the author is Justin Alexander, and the website is thealexandrian.net. Uh, and we'll make sure that all the resources are in the show notes afterwards. And... This guy's been examining uh, OSR for years, and he's been writing modules and game mastering tips for years. And he clued me into the most important things about game mastering that got me back into gaming. I was almost out of RPGs at this point. And the first thing that hit me was that being a game master is a set of skills. Uh, it's not like necessarily having your own story or anything like that, uh, which may be uh, Brian's experience. Yeah. It, it's not having, it's not having this, uh, I want to tell an action movie, right? I, I, I want, I want this sort of thing to happen. Like daddy Warpig, uh, his games are very, 
very action oriented, very exciting, like Die Hard. You know, but but that wasn't my kind of game. And the other thing he introduced me to was the whole idea of OSR. And um, Bradford Walker in the chat actually described the concept best. When we were talking about hex crawls, he says hex crawls is a game procedure that brings in a feedback loop which drives gameplay. And that creates a situation where the players always have something to do. They always have a way of interacting with the game. And that doesn't involve staring at a character sheet or figuring out what skill to test or anything like that. It's, this is this world, what do I want to do with it? And that was, the, those two revelations got me back into gaming and it also showed me that there's a way to learn how to be a game master that it's not something that you either can or can't do. Um, it's a set of skills that can't be taught. So if you head to his site, uh, he's got a subsection called Game Mastery 101. Even if you're a veteran, go through these articles. Um, maybe not prep tips for the beginning DM, but if you're having trouble doing mysteries or other narrative games, he's got uh, an article called The Three Clue Rule, and general rules like don't prep plots. In other words, your job as the game master is to create a framework and you know what things are happening in the world, but don't try to write a story first. Uh, because as we all know, the players are not going to follow what you're doing. Uh, there's uh, his, his page is full of tools uh, and, and rulings and rediscovering things. Um, I want to say something about what you just said about don't prep plots. Um, to say that in a different direction, to say the exact same thing Doranel just said, don't prep stories that you expect your players to go through. If your villain has a plot that is something he's intending to do and he's planned it out and he's got, there's a timetable for it and he's got all the resources for it, that's fine. Your villains can prep their own plots for evil things they're going to do in the world. But you as a game master, don't try and create a story ahead of time that you expect the players to follow. The best thing you can do, um, and a lot of people still get upset at this, but I think they're wrong. I think they're taking uh, the OSR too dogmatically is you can prep a series of encounters, you can prep a series of situations, of scenes, and players then can move from one scene to another based on clues they find or events that happen or whatever. So if you want to create a scene at a tavern where certain things are going to happen and then players react to it the way they want to, that's great. And if that scene at the tavern can lead them to go, you know, getting thrown in jail and you've got that, scene prep that's great too or if it can lead them to going leaving town to go on a dungeon crawl or go to meet with a noble whatever ideas you may have go ahead and prep those that's fine as long as you're not forcing the players to make specific choices and as long as you are prepared to improvise if the players go off in a completely bizarre direction that's fine too um don't prep stories for your players to play through 
But if you're villain's plot, that's great. I'm going to offer a differing perspective on that, and I don't think anyone should really take it as advice, but I do prep stories, and I, I make it work by some sort of weird reverse psychological inception. But by this point, I know my players so well and how they play that I can subtly you know, introduce a scenario or lay out a hook that I know they're going to fall for and I know how they're going to react. So yeah, there is improv involved, but if they throw me a curveball, I've already got something waiting, you know, to exploit that. See, I, I, I can, if I can jump in on this, um, the, the, uh, there's different types of play, uh, that, that I think of from back in the day that for, for Gerb's Humanx, uh, the adventure in the back of that one, um, this is this was a, a, a GURPS product that was based on an Alan Dean Foster science fiction series. But the, the way that that adventure was engineered uh, is what um, it, it, you could call it a string of pearls, where there are a, a series of, of situations that are planned out by the adventure designer. And you don't know how the players are going to handle each individual scene. Uh, but you you do know that what, like once one comes to a close, you can generally see how it would transition to the next one, uh, and so it gives it gives kind of a mixture between the players can do everything they want to within an individual scene, and yet there's still a little bit of a, of, a, of a structure here so that you never quite lose control of of the game. Um, uh, graphic adventures are generally built on this style of, of approach. So, for instance, in Mist, when you're bumming around, you can do whatever you want, but eventually you'll, you'll fix the rocket, and that will take you to the, the next situation that you can interact with. Now, the whole idea of, of D&D, classic D&D, what it brings to the table that is so awesome, is that style of play is exhausting to me. Uh, when I'm in an ongoing campaign that is run with that, then I'm scrambling through reading old issues of JTAS and uh, ADQ, anything, anything, any kind of scenario. I'm looking for anything that might fit. When I leave a session, I'm like hitting the books saying, well, maybe I could do this and maybe I could do that. And maybe I could do this. And I'm trying to get those things into my head so that when I come back, I can sit down and when they do something, I can run with it. D&D um, &D is a very it's a game it, it's it's a very loose structure that the players can in get into and it, it because they have choice uh to do whatever they want uh they'll know a dozen different things they could do at any given time uh they know how much they want to push their luck in terms of how far deep they want to go the, the deeper it gets the harder it gets so you don't have to design something that is suitable to them you have just enough structure that they'll go find whatever they want and it's easy to keep up with it. So the old school approach, uh, as opposed to the more, quote, mature uh, story oriented, oriented approach of, of, of old style game mastering, to me, it's just relaxing to be able to sit down at the table and leave it wide open. And then I, I will point blank say the, to the characters, you know, I don't know if what you're going to do is going to ruin the fun or not. I honestly don't know. Um, so, so what it does is, what's the magic of it is, is the responsibility for keeping things fun shifts away from the game master and to the players. 
the players start sweating bullets because they're like, look, we don't want to make a decision that ruins the session. Um, and so that puts the GM where he's purely adjudicating. He's not a wannabe Tolkien-esque fiction writer. He's not an adventure designer. He just has this structure and this uh, very light system and, and, a, and you know, a, a dungeon and a wilderness. And it just works without him having to make it work. I love it. And, and, if, and if you're sufficiently prepared, he can handle Oh yeah. So, so for instance, and this is, this is old advice from like a, a back issue of Knox spell, I think from phylotomy, you know, you don't have to design a, a dungeon level in advance. Uh, you just have to know a little bit of what's down there. If they go down the stairs and you haven't designed it, you know, you know, in, in old school D and D there's going to be a wandering monster check. So if you know what that wandering monster check is, they'll generally hit that and probably have to go back to town anyway. So you, you, you can pencil everything in and, and, and sketch out a one-page dungeon if they actually are serious about going there. So it, you're never sweating to prep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that just, we just spent uh, over five minutes talking about the implications of one article. Uh, there's, there's just, there's so much, there's so much to the OSR and that's why I wanted to talk about online resources. Like there's so much there. Like I haven't even touched, scratched the surface of all the cool blogs and stuff that you guys have been writing and, and everything like that. So I want to share that with the listeners. Uh, does anybody have, uh, something that they want to volunteer? Brian, do you have any resources or something that somebody should look up if they, if they want to get into your style of gaming or OSR? Well, if you want to get into my style of gaming, you're basically going to have to come to my house and play in a game because um, I run one of two systems, both of which I invented. So I don't actually run OSR. Yeah, but making your own system is more old school than you, you give credit. Aha. Uh -huh. well, there we go. Yeah, one of them is very Rift-tastic right now. It's very not ready for prime time. It's a situation where only I can really make it work and just barely. So I would recommend that one. And then another one is a highly modified fusion of like um, WEG Star Wars and DC Heroes that um, my buddies and I have been using to run um, mecha campaigns set in like our own alternate Gundam timeline for like 14 years now, which is really mature and works really well. Wow. Well, well maybe maybe system wise it I don't know if it'd be appealing system wise or not but but I think everybody uh, in the chats looking for your uh, your address so we can get a game going <laughs> if there's anything cool that you want to post online go for it I, I I'd love to see some of that I mean other than the stuff that you've converted into dragon award-winning novels that is that is different I actually um, did a lot of that in various editions of D&D and then developed my own systems since then. And the, the one that uh, I'm currently working on that needs a lot of work is actually inspired by my novel. So went from like second and third ed D&D into my novels. And now I'm designing a game system based on those because I changed the original D&D so much. So it's this weird, crazy evolution filtered through a bunch of different screens. 
That's awesome. Uh, what about you guys, Daddy Warpig, uh, Jeffro? Do you have any resources you want to share with everybody? And and please send me the links uh, in the chat, and we'll make sure that it goes on the show notes afterwards. Resources for playing, for being a game master, for so uh, anything really. It doesn't even have to be related to OSR. Just like what's a good blog or or resource to read? Like how can you read up on the, the great things happening in gaming these days. You know, I, um, there was something that happened in my life in late 2014 that kind of pushed me out of keeping track of new events happening in role playing. Um, I continue to play when and as I can and play a number of different games. Um, I just started playing in a Star Wars campaign with the new funky dice, um, but I haven't had I haven't been active on role playing message boards or uh, reading role playing blogs, with a few rare exceptions of articles that other people link to that are particularly good. Um, it's unfortunate, so I don't know that anything I have is is current. But well, that's okay. That's okay. We'll, I've got something. Hey, Jeffro's got something. <laughs> is, is, okay. Uh, if, if you want the best gaming blogs on the internet that will always give you food for thought, that will always get you excited about gaming, and that there's always uh, new content uh, and great old content, everything. Uh, top of my list right now is Save Versus All Wands. That's the blog of Oaks Spalding. Um, he he made a retro clone uh, way back, and uh, right now he's going through digging, uh, taking apart first edition Tunnels and Trolls uh, bit by bit and comparing it to first edition Dungeons and Dragons. And it's an awesome series. You You have to see this. This is a side of gaming history that really hasn't gotten a lot of attention, um, and it's awesome. Uh, next up, I would uh, highly recommend "Don't Split the Party," um, and and this is a person. This is by Rick Stump. He's um, he sat at the feet of game designer Louis Pulsifer, the designer of Britannia, classic war game. Um, Rick has played AD and D first edition continuously for over thirty years. And he has awesome, awesome supplements of his own that he's made for it. Um, I didn't oh, think yeah, it was, was possible. Be, uh, he was supposed to be uh, joining us tonight. He couldn't make it tonight. Sorry, everybody. I I didn't think it was possible to play AD&D. I've always been a basic guy. I looked at it and I said, nobody's playing that. Well, I, I, this is one case where I was wrong. And you can, you can hear <laughs> how much of why the rules are better than you think they are from somebody who actually really runs the campaigns. Um, finally, uh, for Traveler, the greatest resource on the internet for Traveler right now is Tales to Astound. Uh, this is by uh, a guy who has taken classic Traveler books one through three, just the first three books from the 1970s, uh, the books that Mark Miller created basically looking at original Dungeons & Dragons three booklets and then making three booklets for a science fiction game, just straight from that. Um, he, this is a, 
a breakdown of not just the pulp literature inspirations of the books, not just a breakdown of what changed between first and second edition, but it's how to play the original game without the third Imperium setting that became inseparable from it in the minds of gamerdom. Uh, it, it would be like if you said, let's play D&D and people couldn't imagine doing anything other than Forgotten Realms. That's what's happened to Traveler. Um, uh, and if you look at what the game was... Are you saying uh, that's not what happened to D&D? Well, you know, I, <laughs> did, did, did that happen for real? Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. Um, that, that book is... That, that blog is first class. And it's by Christopher... His last name starts with a K. I can't pronounce it. Um, uh, he, he's just top-notch blogger. All, all of these guys are, are first rate. There are so many more. Uh, it's, it's insane. Um, but uh, if I had to just pick three uh, to, that, that I'm reading currently, uh, religiously, those are the three. Um, I have one recommendation that I was trying to remember as I was giving my half-assed answer. There was one recommendation that came to the show with because you sent out an email saying, you must come to the show with one recommendation, and I had one. I had a recommendation, and then you asked the question. It went right out of my brain. Um, it didn't help, but I was also taking notes at the same time. So my apologies. I was doing two things at the same time. Literally, while I was talking, I was typing something up into a document. Um, the one recommendation I have is this. If you want to play Dungeons & Dragons, if you want to know what the old-school dungeoneering and the old-school puzzle-solving gameplay was based on, where it came from, there's an obscure book that I haven't talked about on the show before, but it's, it's, it's really, you know, pretty good. Uh, it, it actually goes back through some of the sources from which Gary Gygax drew inspiration to... Um, and I apologize, I haven't mentioned this before, but it's a good book. You'll want to check it out. It goes back through some of the sources that Gary Gygax drew inspiration from and Dave Artisan drew uh, inspiration from so that you can kind of understand what they meant to do with the rules they were writing, even though they didn't explain the rules to you well. They didn't explain how they used the rules in play. They didn't explain the gestalt of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons or... or um, you know, the Holmes Moldvay or White Box or whatever, even though they didn't explain the intended gameplay style. If you go back and look at some of the things that inspired them, some of the things that uh, would explain a lot of the mysteries of Dungeons and Dragons, then that can help you kind of get a, a feel for what they intended the game to be. There is in, and, and fortunately for us, in um, Gary Gygax's First edition AD&D Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide. At the very back of the book, he has a bunch of appendices, one of which is uh, a list of works that inspired him in creating Dungeons and Dragons. Not just advanced Dungeons and Dragons, but the entire concept for the game from the beginning. Uh, it's Appendix N, and in connection with the OSR, a lot of writers, a lot of uh, game bloggers have talked about the books that were part of it and have, you know, analyzed them dissecting. What I would recommend is when it comes to looking at the works and the authors in Appendix N, it's always better to actually 
go back and read the books themselves. So there's a book called Appendix N, the Literary History of Dungeons and Dragons, that you can go and take a look at that goes through all these Appendix N authors, reviews some of their books, and shows you how they affected the game. So I would recommend, seriously, go look at this book on Amazon. There is a link to it in the description of the video. Read it, see how it affected D&D, and then go and read the story and they're very easy to acquire these stories are are thanks to modern day technology and ebooks you can buy all kinds of stories for 99 cents or for free you can buy everything an author has ever written go check out this book appendix and the literary history of dungeons and dragons and then uh, once you've read one of the blog posts one of the uh, chapters about these specific books go and read the book and and understand what it was that they were drawing on when they created dungeons and dragons that would be my recommendation that's outstanding and on that note um, i am gonna have to take off here to go and produce more thrilling entertainment for you all but just want to say thanks at a uh, a great time and also, speaking of buying everything an author's ever written, I want to remind everybody that my entire Soul Cycle three book series is currently on sale for four more days. You can get it for less than the price of one copy of Scalzi's new flop. So, there's that. Heck yeah, you should do that. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. It was a great time. Very welcome. Thanks to you and Danny Warpig and Jeffro. I I learned a lot. I'm always learning. This is uh, this is our first RPG special. We've been going for over an hour. Uh, do you, uh, Daddy Warpig and Jeffro, have a time to do a quick question and answer? Uh, yeah. I want to say one thing real quick before I do that. The first rule of advice for every single game master is this. Know yourself and know your adventuring party. Know your players. Because... Every single piece of advice you hear about game mastering, about how to run a game and how to play a game, might not be applicable to you. Maybe only 20% of it is applicable to you. So know yourself, know your players, and that way you will know which advice to follow and which advice to discard, um, because it doesn't matter how other people play the game. It only matters how you play the game. That's excellent general advice. And it started with like a Sun Tzu thing there, like know yourself and know thy enemy. <laughs> and always, yeah, always remember the players are the enemy. <laughs> Darn right. I, the, the My players always roll my eyes when I talk about how disappointed I am that none of them died at the end of the session. <laughs> so, so we've got a couple of great questions in chat, but I'll be honest, the chat have been uh, answering their own questions. We've got great discussion in the chat tonight. I did come prepared with one question, and it's actually not my question. This is something that a friend of mine who joined my open table game after work started his own game on the, on the weekends. 100% uh, success. I love it. He had a thing come up in his game that he asked me about, and I gave him an answer, and it ended up working out okay, just to spoil. But I wanted to know what you guys thought. So the question is, here's the setup. At the end of last session, this is a Dungeons & Dragons game, uh, the party was split. 
because they encountered the main villain of this dungeon who knocked out half the party and captured them. So they've all been knocked out and, and taken to a, a jail cell or something like that. While the other half of the party escaped into another part of the dungeon. So that's how the session ended. How do I run the next session? Assuming all the players show up. Uh, go ahead. I know the OSR answer. The OSR answer is you should have hirelings, henchmen, uh, and other NPCs around that you can play them temporarily while your character is incapacitated or even dead. Right, and in uh, and, and Tunnels and Trolls, uh, you, you would be playing three or four characters at once. Uh, and so if, if, um, if, like if, if you're playing alien and somebody gets grabbed and they've, and they've been taken to the nest and there's an egg in them, they're going to, they're just going to blow up. Um, you, you just, you just let that character be off stage for a while and, uh, you can go back and try to save them. Um, and it's no big deal. Uh, it, but if everybody's playing, uh, a special snowflake, that's an army of one that can't die because if they die or get lost, then that ruins the game. Well, you, you've just you, you've just crippled yourself. And <laughs> so I, I'm going to agree with Warpig on this one. Okay, good answer. My answer was I assumed, uh, unlike you guys, you're you're thinking outside the box. This is why you guys run the, the games, right? <laughs> I I assumed that they wanted to play their characters still, so I su just suggested that he go really advanced, uh, like as if he has been running games for years instead of months and say, you can run the whole party at the same time. You just have to use downtime to switch from character to character and, and uh, or group to group and tell the players ahead of time, I'm doing it this way. And, and have them do things like dice rolls and things while you're interacting with the other group. So that you can come back and say, okay, give me your attack rolls, give me your, you know, skill tests, that sort of thing. And try to make, try to turn that situation uh, and create some dramatic tension out of it. Like, maybe the guard heard something in the cell as they're trying to escape. And, and uh, you know, what happens next? Oh, let's switch to the other party who's trying to fight their way through another part of the dungeon to rescue their friends, right? I uh, another approach that you might try is that instead of creating new characters to be with the main party who wasn't captured, create new characters to be with the part of the party that was captured, and then run entirely from their point of view trying to escape. A jailbreak is a great change of pace, and it can if they get all their gear taken away, you know, the wizard doesn't have a spell book to memorize his spells, the thief doesn't have his pick and tools, so maybe he has to kind of, you know, scrounge for them or whatever, that can be a new challenge where all their stuff is taken away and they have to escape and sneak out. Yeah, I, I uh, when, when these people get split off from the party, I just take, I take the uh, character sheets and put them in a folder, and it's like, Sometimes and then and then uh, sometimes these people they'll get wound they'll leave their wounded you know and it's like well what happened to that person you know uh, did the hobgoblins take him and put him in jail did he get eaten you know uh, did did some NPC party come and save him you know you know I'll, I'll make a, a table of like well what 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 happened with that and I'll I'll randomly determine what happened and then um, you know three four weeks later uh, somebody else dies and I'll be like 
oh, well, you know, at the tavern, you see so-and-so. And they're like, what? <laughs> and somebody needs a character, they, they get that one back and, and, and they're back in business. And it's, it adds a little bit of uh, kind of continuity or uh, sub-creation. It, it makes it seem real um, when, when you come back in the dungeon and your ex-PC is now a zombie or, you know, has been you know, taken over by the, the, the spider queen or whatever, you know, the, the, the with, when you have a high death game or, or, or PCs that are getting dropped all the time, there's just so many things you could, you end up being able to do with them. And, and you, the, the great thing is, is that you, the, the, the players have already done the character development for you. This, 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 this person that got left in the dungeon has had more attention to its, its personality than anything you're going to come up with for a random NPC to put in the tavern or whatever. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's just, it just takes a load off the GM from having to be this nonstop creativity machine. I love it. I had a question. Does the antagonist have a clear and pressing reason to leave the captured characters alive instead of imprisoning them? Or like, instead of just killing them rather? I don't recall. That's, that's that's way too complex for an RPG, there, Brian. You're, you. <laughs> I, I I mean, yes. The obvious solution was you're all dead, and let's move on. You know, here's your three d six. Okay, roll three d six in order. We're we're moving on to another scene here, guys. Uh, that that does remind me. I, I I did have a great moment. Just to digress, I did have a great moment uh, where a, a new player showed up and he played a wizard, and naturally he just gets killed off right away. <laughs> And uh, and while I'm talking to the other players during the scene, because we're still in middle of combat and we're adjudicating the whole thing, like as I'm speaking, I, I pick up a blank character sheet, 3D6, and I walk over to the guy and I just set them down in front of him. <laughs> That's how you know. That's how you know you're playing real D&D &D, right there. That's yep. the moment. And how they react tells you far more about their character than about the quality of the game. <laughs> Yep, everybody loved it. Everybody, everybody loved it. It was a great moment. Why is that the exact opposite? No, now when I was a kid, I never wanted to do that. I, I thought that's inherently unfun. But why is that? Why do people get excited about that? I don't get it. Why do people get excited by what? When 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 you when someone dies in your dungeon and you're like you're thinking, oh no, this is going to hurt their feelings, and you hand them the black the blank character the. The piece of notebook paper and the, and the 3d6 so they can roll 3d6 in order again i have seen as often as not people get really into it like they're like oh get out of my way i'm making a new character i'm coming back in there and it 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 ratches up the excitement levels rather than killing the fun like you would think like i used to think it would it it depends on the players it depends on the game it depends on their expectations i have seen um where the death of one specific character would kill a campaign, um, where players would be more upset over this other character dying than even their own character died. Their own character died, they make up a new one, but if this, this one character died, um, they would quit the game. I'm not saying that's good, I'm not saying that's bad, I'm just saying okay, that's I weird have to me. seen it. That, that's just weird to me, I can't imagine that. That, that actually happened. I'm talking about Daddy Warpig's game. One of those types of characters in question literally died in the final scene of the campaign and 
the whole table went silent. We we gave we gave this character like a minute of silence. Some people just get attached. On wow. that note, uh, on that note, it's well past time that we wrap this up. This has been an amazing show. I'd like to thank uh, you guys for coming on, Daddy Warpig, Briny Miner, and uh, Jeffro Johnson. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming on and talk to me about this. Uh, it was so much fun. We may even do it again sometime. For those of you listening, hang out and chat. Thank you so much for joining us. Lively discussion in the chat. All those suggestions that Jeffro made uh, during the earlier segment. They've been pasted into the uh, show description, so go ahead and reload that page, or if you're viewing us later, click on those links and check out all those things he was talking about. And they can see all of us again this Saturday with two additional special guests. I'm talking about that. That's right. We're all going to be back uh, in just a couple of days uh, on Saturday, uh, May or April 29th. It is the return of Jeff Rowe, John C. Wright, author and uh, YouTuber Razor Fist. We're going to hang out. We're going to talk more pulp. Uh, they're going to talk more pulp. I'm going to sit back, drink Pepsi, and listen. This is going to be a great show, guys. You are not going to want to miss this. Okay, so so this is a new thing for me. Usually Daddy Warpig does the intro and the outro. I almost forgot that I also have to do the outro here. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, uh, you also have to tell them where they can get the show. Oh, I do. Uh, we are available on YouTube at uh, youtube.com slash geekgab. I believe we're available on SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, and basically anywhere you can get uh, podcasts, you can get us. We're always at geekgab. Daddy Warpig, did I miss anything? Nope. Then that's it for tonight. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you guys for showing up. I want to give everybody a good night. Thank you for listening to the Geek Hab. This has been the Geek Hab RPG special for April 27, 2017. Thank you, everybody, and have a good night. And uh, Daddy Warpig, guess what? Mm -hmm. We will be back. <laughs>